Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the first episode of Smarty Pants in 2020. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and I hope you've had plenty of time to dig into whatever New Year's resolutions you had. A perpetual item on my list is to become a tidier person. And, well, let's just say it's a good thing that I have a whole year to work on it. Was decluttering or kanmarying on your list? What about creating a capsule closet, purging your bookshelf, striving for inbox zero? Everywhere, all the time, it seems like we're being sold on the idea that getting rid of things will solve our problems. And it's all being packaged under the label of minimalism. But what is minimalism? In his new book, The Longing for Less, Kyle Chaka criticizes this trend as a kind of upscale austerity designed to get you to buy and consume things. Maybe fewer things, but things nonetheless. Have we lost the true meaning of minimalism? Chaka turns to a history of art, design, and philosophy that goes much further back than the 1960s work of Agnes Martin, Donald Judd, or John Cage, to show that maybe the most meaningful part is that constant search for meaning, for finding a way to make sense of our emotional emptiness in the face of such abundance. Kyle Chaka has written for the likes of the New York Times Magazine, N Plus One, and the Paris Review. He joins us in the studio to sell us on a brand of minimalism that won't bankrupt you, emotionally or financially. Thanks for coming in, Kyle. Yeah, thank you for having me. So when did you first begin diagnosing our current ongoing obsession with minimalism? I think it was around uh, maybe 2015, 2016, when I started realizing just from talking to people and writing about kind of design issues that so many different things were being referred to as minimalist. Like you could call a bar minimalist, you could call a hotel minimalist, you could call a chair minimalist, you could call your outfit minimalist, you could call your skincare routine minimalist. And then my own background is in art history and like art criticism. So I had always thought of minimalism as an art movement in the 60s in New York that had like specific people and specific values and comprised specific artists. But the people who were using minimalist like in the 2010s didn't really have any reference to that. It was just kind of this trendy term. I guess I started thinking about um, what it did mean and what people were using it to mean. What I think is super interesting about your introduction to the book is that you talk about how minimalism has a much longer history even, predating 1964, and Mm -hmm. throughout that history, it has a tendency to erase its origins. 
Yeah. Why? <laughs> uh, well, minimalism is like as little as possible. And so uh, appearing to come from somewhere or have some history or roots is like somehow not minimalist. Uh, and it, I mean, it was a real trick in writing the book. Or it was a constant navigation of how to address what minimalism is. And so capital M minimalism is that 1960 like four or five thing. But I wanted to use the word minimalism to encompass this like pretty wide batch of ideas and figures and thinkers and artists who adopted this idea of absence and like tried to think about absence and what it meant to live a simple or austere life and what it meant to go against the idea that like accumulating things in the world was important or necessary. So that's not just, you know, Mary Kondo or like cleaning your apartment, but living a simple life like the, the Stoics would have you think, or the Zen Buddhist idea of accepting life's ephemerality and, you know, being aware of your surroundings and appreciating specific moments for and of themselves. I don't think minimalism has a linear history. Right. Like there's no, there's no cause and effect to get from Zen Buddhism necessarily in the 11th century to... Donald Judd in 1964 but they do share central ideas and concerns and like anxieties that I found kept cropping up in in different societies and times and places. So in talking about some of those people in your book especially the architects you use this phrase aggressively empty spaces which I think is a really useful one because that's one of the more interesting contradictions of minimalism that these spaces can be simultaneously empty and also so loaded and so grating. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, like really aggressive and loud and like, yeah. you know, silence or absence. It can be about control and it can be about morality in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like minimalism is associated with moral purity in the, the sense of like you're living a clean life and you know exactly what's around you and you have decided what matters to you the book is kind of against an orthodox minimalism. Like I think in some ways today, minimalism is seen as this like blueprint style that if you, if your walls aren't white and if you don't have this like blonde wood minimalist furniture, then you're not a proper minimalist. Um, And really I just wanted to like deconstruct that notion and kind of get rid of the, almost a cliche of minimalism, which is, I think is what people feel oppressed by Mm -hmm. Uh, like these super empty, kind of vacuum-like spaces don't seem to have any room for humanity in them. And they they only accept one vision of how one should live or be. Uh, and I really don't think that's what minimalism was or should be about. In a lot of ways, the artists and writers and philosophers who I talk about were more about letting go of that control and about, you know, kind of dropping the the filter between you and the world around you. Right. Yeah, what's so interesting about a lot of those, like, stereotypically minimalist spaces like airports or Mm -hmm. hotel lobbies they're designed to offend the least number of people (laughs) while at the same time that decision is supposed to be some bold aesthetic choice right it's like it both has to be a a lowest common denominator aesthetic since it has to exist in so many places and it purports to be like the one solution to the problem of aesthetics so the book is kind of about where minimalism came from Mm -hmm. but there's another question of why it's so omnipresent exactly Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that is because all spaces are very temporary and globalized and like dynamic so 
the spaces that you move through a lot or that have to be as acceptable as possible, minimalism is a great way of achieving that just because it's, it is kind of, <laughs> neutral is a hard word to use, but it's like visually neutral. Right. Uh, because it, it has a way of retreating into the background and not getting in your face as much. Um, and it's like easily recreated because any industrial space with white painted walls or like a cement floor can kind of be appreciated as an aesthetic choice rather than just a default. It's become like a weird lingua franca for like technological spaces. You could trace that back to like the startup mythology of starting in a garage and like, I mean, there's the Steve Jobs cliche of this Mm -hmm. photograph of him sitting in his living room with nothing on the floor and like one lamp and one stereo. And he's like, this is all I need to live. Like I, a rich, successful tech person, only need a few objects. So therefore you should also only need a few objects. Yeah. I mean, I want to get back to that photo because I think it contains a lot of hidden information. (laughs) Um, But I mean, do you feel like as a result of globalization and this transit that the commodification and commercialization of minimalism is different from the same capitalization that would be applied to like any other art movement because like pretty much everything is co-opted is there something different about this moment yeah I mean I think I think we're kind of a long way from the minimalist art movement it's kind of over (laughs) like you can't you can't be a minimalist artist now the the minimalist aesthetic of those artists in the 60s was already co-opted by the 70s through the 90s like you started having calvin klein doing photo shoots in donald judd's hometown of marfa texas and you had fashion boutiques suddenly having all their walls white and you know putting one handbag on the wall like framing everything as this intense art object so i think i think minimalism was somehow easy to commodify even though it's a, such an anti-commodification uh, idea I mean, Donald Judd has a lot to do with why that happened, I think. there was He was kind of the quintessential artist in a loft in Soho, and he had taken over this giant warehouse building and turned it into his home and studio and office and, like, creative space. And that became a template for adaptive reuse in architecture and, like, appreciating... <laughs> I always found it funny when I went to the loft in Soho because he has an open-plan kitchen in, like, 1960... <laughs> it was so funny because it looks just like everywhere now, but it was designed, what, 50 years ago. Mm, yeah. Uh, it just looks so contemporary. So I think he he created this association between minimalism and a kind of creative, bohemian, but successful lifestyle. And that's what got co-opted so quickly. Also, minimalism's refusal of like a particular moral judgment it's really easy to translate that to just an intense appreciation of like mundane aesthetics. Uh, I always think about how, you know, Donald Judd or Agnes Martin turned like the choice of where to paint a stripe or like how big of a metal box to make into an artistic act. Mm -hmm. And now we just think of like choosing your countertop as an artistic act. Totally. Like the leap between those two things is actually not that far. Right. Yeah. And I think that gets totally at what, minimalism hides and what that iconic photo of Steve Jobs which kickstarted this idolatry of tech minimalism mm. I think hides which is that the stereo system that he's pictured with and the lamp he's pictured with cost tens of thousands of dollars like the lamp yeah. is made by Tiffany and then the stereo system is like $8,000 <laughs> right these aren't like functionalist objects they're not right. just like what he had lying around they were these you know he was a connoisseur and he had a lot of money so he could afford to get 
only the best things possible. Right. And I think the the ideology of minimalism has turned from like appreciating what's around you to only having the best stuff, which is definitely not what it was about initially. Um, yeah, like uh, I always think of the there was a storefront uh, for this brand Koyana, which is a kind of e-commerce, you know, internet-y thing. Uh, and the, their slogan is just fewer, better things, which is, you know, it's pretty snappy and interesting, but that's not minimalism. <laughs> like that idea of the perfect object is, is not what I like about minimalism. It's more about taking something that you wouldn't think of as beautiful or you wouldn't think of as artistic and then reframing it as something that's worth looking at really intensely. Uh, so not a leather bag or not like... Right, not uh, something that's already imbued with value right, in yeah. capitalism. Right, it's like, it's a way of rethinking your your aesthetic notions rather than just reaffirming them. Right. Do you think that this latest version of minimalism, fewer, better things, so to speak, exposes class tensions or elitism sort of inherent in minimalism? To be able to focus so intensely on aesthetic appreciation of what's around you is a, is definitely a luxury and is like right. an elite luxury. <laughs> like yeah. certainly the the kind of lifestyle minimalists that I talk to and and think about in the book, uh, a lot of them came out of poverty or used minimalism as a tool to deal with debt. And that was not just about aesthetic appreciation or like throwing out stuff, but uh, actually grasping for some control and like in capitalism like trying to figure out a way to find stability for themselves so when you when you are throwing stuff out or you're like oh I only need one outfit that to me is also a luxury because one you can always buy something back if you do need it like two we have this whole tech ecosystem of the sharing economy and like the rental economy so you don't need to be like sullied by owning things and like three, you can afford to buy that best thing possible. Uh, and maybe it's higher quality, maybe it's more durable, maybe it's like tasteful enough to move between different circumstances. And those are all things I think that are like elitist notions uh, that aren't accessible to all people. Well, in a lot of ways too, it also like rids you of having to think about what happens to your stuff after you've condoed it, mm -hmm. after it like <laughs> is in the garbage bag on the curb. And this, yeah. you know, gets to it like, um, you talk about the sleekness of the iPhone, for instance, disguising not only like the hardware inside, but also the vast undersea cables that are required to run our G networks and then right. rare earth mining and then the subhuman factory conditions in China where they make the phones. Yeah, we shouldn't call technology minimalist anymore. We, yeah. we so often do because the iPhone like looks very sleek and simple. It's just glass and steel. Like, isn't this amazing? But it depends on this massive infrastructure that we can't see that we're like encouraged to forget about by the Johnny Ives design of the object itself. Um, so the minimalism is a kind of facade for what makes it function. And I think like architectural minimalism often has the same problem, yeah. like as in Philip Johnson's glass house, which he finished in 1949, which is this kind of perfect rectangle of, of glass and like a perfect environment inside of it where there's perfect Mies van der chairs and like one perfect storage unit that hides the bed and everything is just perfect there. Every object in it is immaculately chosen. But actually, like, when he built the glass house, he found out there were all sorts of problems to, like, not having walls or not having spaces to hide infrastructure and storage and stuff. So 
he ended up running all the wiring and plumbing for the glass house, like underground to this other house called the brick house, which was totally not transparent, like totally opaque and had all of the infrastructure kind of hidden within it. Um, so the one has to prop up the other. You can't have that perfect space without all of the, the infrastructure and messiness to support it somewhere else. I mean, if there's one perfect metaphor for modern minimalism, I think it's the glass and brick houses. Yeah. It's emphasizing the space, the real estate, the property mm. <laughs> that you can afford to have. And at the same time, it's setting up this aesthetic as a default, as a neutral statement. And I want to talk more about that neutrality because I think that comes up most clearly in the chapter you have about music, mm. silence, ironically. Um and how, you know, we think of these, there was like this movement of minimalist music, which was dominated by artists like Philip Glass. But there were other minimalist artists like Julius Eastman, for instance, who just by sort of existing as a gay black man and making music that didn't quite fit the mold sort of pointed mm. out that it wasn't really neutral at all. Yeah, like the aesthetic choices that are made so often present themselves as neutral or as a universal reference point that everyone should like. Um, where minimalist architecture has these empty spaces that are hyper-controlled, minimalist music had this like elegant repetition and like adoption of found pieces of sound and like it kind of uh, is very slick and like smooth and lulling and hypnotic uh, and the titles that people like Steve Reich or... Philip Glass used, I think, also emphasized that neutrality. Like, a piece would be called Four Pianos or, like, Five Drums or, you know, just drumming. Um, and so this is presented as just, like, oh, I'm making an aesthetic decision. I'm presenting you with an aesthetic experience that is somehow empty of content. That group of composers kind of came up on the West Coast at the same time that minimalist art was happening in New York but then in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, you kind of had this reckoning with minimalism. And when Julius Eastman started using the same strategies that these other composers were using, he was not accepted into that same context. Like, because he was black, because he was gay, because he didn't fit that academic mold, his adoption of the same strategies was somehow not acceptable. Uh, and he... He would also title a lot of his pieces with like thoroughly non-neutral language. I think like gay gorilla is probably the one that we can say on air. <laughs> like rather than calling it four drums or something or five pianos or six saxophones, uh, he, you know, he would title them with, with names that came from his own identity and came from his own kind of ideology as a human in the world. And that kind of breaks some of minimalism's neutrality. Uh, and presents it as actually coming from somewhere and actually having something to say and having a kind of it's it just seems so much more rebellious to me and so much more of a vital artistic act uh, than just the statement of like yes noise can be music instead it's like we can use minimalism as this like powerful tool to express ourselves and disrupt what people think of as aesthetic experience and it somehow exists like within society and within identity rather than holding itself outside of that. My favorite piece of Julius Eastman's is called Stay On It. And in Stay On It, he takes this kind of disco-y uh, soul hook that's maybe like five seconds long or ten seconds long. And he just repeats it over and over and over and over again with an ever-changing set of instruments. Like whatever you had on hand was fine to play Stay On It. And through the repetition, this hook became something that was like massive and interesting and like 
aggressive and boring and like it makes you entirely rethink what music is because you're being confronted with this like fragment of popular culture blown up into something completely different. That sort of gets at what you talk about with the idea of deeper minimalism. It's really about the specificity of the person experiencing the art yeah, or even making the art. Yeah. Like minimalist art really wanted you to think about your own perception and your own experience. Like the point was not that it was just a metal box. The point was that you could experience the metal box in a really compelling way as an individual. Your experience of this metal box and your perception of it in space and your existence in the world around you is just as beautiful as, you know, seeing the Mona Lisa. It allows you to think about what you are thinking and what experience you take away from something rather than it it being like a one-way didactic relationship between artist and viewer. Like the artist is not telling the viewer what to think in minimalism. It's kind of freeing you to have your own experience of something in front of you or to take that experience and then apply it somewhere else in the way of like John Cage reframing what's around you as music. You can think about tires squealing on the street as like maybe a pleasant experience (laughs) or like the kind of humdrum chaotic noise of the world becomes something more elegant and beautiful. And I think that's, that's like a great way to experience the world. It kind of uh, sparks joy again to use a Marie Kondoism. Yeah. I mean, um, it's it's a response to excess in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. These big global changes, even disasters, world wars, mm-hmm. financial, financial crises. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so in some ways, it's it's almost funny because it's like, no, not that. And then it retreats into that, but the opposite, <laughs> right? Yeah, like austerity can also be a form of consumption or can mm-hmm. also be excessive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what we, w- what we can do with minimalism is like try to stop the swinging between those two extremes and like find something in the middle or like just find a more conscious way of approaching consumerism or like our existence in the world. Um, rather than just like swinging between the two and thinking that austerity is the answer to excess and then excess is the answer to austerity. You know, we started being more minimalist because we were so overwhelmed and overloaded with information and data and just news and stuff around us that we wanted to retreat from it and be more self-aware. And I think that is a good thing, but I do think it like switches back into consumption so quickly. Like the cliche is that millennials consume experiences instead of things experiences are exactly as much a commodity as a thing your instagrams of your vacation to tulum are just as much about consumerism as buying an eames lounge chair this makes me also think of minimalism as slow as like a slow Mm. process rather than an end point there's no end to be reached in minimalism there isn't like a state that you will hit that is purely minimalist it's like a day-to-day experience that you have to seek out it should be slow and gradual and like about the development of your own taste and your own environment uh, or learning the language or like learning more about a place before you visit or just having an aware experience of the world. Uh, and that doesn't come with just like ordering something on Amazon or reading a minimalist blog. Yes. Or reading a minimalist book. In fact, <laughs> you have to do it for yourself. There are no answers in this book. It will not <laughs> tell you how to organize your socks. It is true. Kyle Cheka has no answers for you in The Longing for Less, but he does ask a lot of really good questions and posts some signs along the way for good places to explore in your own search for meaning. When it comes to aesthetics, 
I at least will sadly never be a minimalist. I'm more of a maximalist, but I don't think you need to live in a glass house or exalt white walls for minimalism's existential questions to resonate with you. Kyle mentioned a lot of really lovely artists and thinkers in this conversation, so we'll have links in the show notes for that. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.